evening, everybody. So uh, this is actually the last Sunday, as far as I know, that will be in 2 Corinthians. We've been doing a series uh, through 2 Corinthians, and this is chapter 13, the last chapter. Uh, I don't know, maybe one of the other guys will want to do like a, uh, a follow-up next week <coughs> to continue on in 2 Corinthians, but I think it's, we're almost to the end, if not the end, uh, tonight. Uh, so, um, I'm just going to go ahead and read this uh, straight off the bat. If you notice in your bulletin, I put part of chapter 12 in italics there. That's just to give some context to the passage we have in front of us. Uh, and then I'll just pick up with the, uh, with the part not in italics, <coughs> just to, uh, but the per- first part there you can take a look at, it's just for the context. So this is the word of the Lord uh, from the Apostle Paul in the second letter to the Corinthians chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while present, (coughs) as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, (coughs) for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but so that you may do what is right though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, so that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration Comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. So, um, as I said, this comes in a context, really, if you've been here through a lot of the series of 2 Corinthians, uh, there's been a whole lot of discussion, basically, of Paul rebuking the Corinthian church for one or another thing that they were doing wrong. <clears throat> you can see, again, in that italicized thing, uh, he talks about sexual immorality, he talks about slander and gossip, disorder, uh, jealousy, and so on. All of those have sort of gotten uh, Paul's attention uh, for the previous uh, 12 chapters. <clears throat> and um, so now he's kind of summing up and uh, actually, a few weeks ago, I talked a little bit about um, church discipline. Uh, so the first paragraph that you have in front of you there on, on page six, uh, Paul is giving some fairly threatening language, and he's kind of summing up, uh, saying, well, I hope you've taken my advice, you've done what I asked you to do, uh, and so when I come, I don't have to be severe uh, and use the authority that I have as an apostle of Christ. Uh, And then he returns to that at the end of the chapter as well, saying in verse 10, I hope (coughs) that uh, I don't have to be severe in the use of my authority. 
So just to kind of remind you of a few things, I'm not going to go into a really lengthy discussion of church discipline, but just to remind you of a couple things. Uh, this kind of power that he's talking about, uh, I don't think he's talking about I'm going to come and I'm going to shoot lightning bolts out of my hands and zap you with the uh, miraculous power that I've been given. Uh, I think he's talking about uh, church authority. Uh, and granted, he's an apostle, and so he has more authority uh, than your average uh, church today. He has um, really, you could say, uh, a God-given ability to see the truth of things in a way that uh, we don't usually. Uh, but I think that actually what he's talking about is something that is given to the entire church, and in our denomination we call it uh, variously church discipline uh, or um, spiritual oversight, uh, whatever phrase you might want to use. Uh, and this is actually a lot of the language that he uses here is kind of echoing stuff that we've seen elsewhere in Scripture. I'll just, unfortunately, I didn't have space to put a whole lot of additional Scriptures, so I'm just going to read uh, some to you. Uh, <clears throat> but, uh, for instance, in Matthew 18, very famous passage, uh, Jesus says, To the one who is in sin, take along with you two, one or two others, that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to, to listen to them, tell it to the church, and let him uh, be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Uh, and so you hear that echo of that here with two or three witnesses that Paul is talking about. He's talking about a trial with evidence where people are uh, put on uh, trial for, uh, for really uh, disobedience uh, to God. But Jesus goes on in Matthew 18 passage to say something even more uh, maybe astounding. He says, truly, Whatever I, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he's, he's really talking about commissioning the church to make pronouncements about whether or not people are in a state of grace and are forgiven of their sins. Uh, and uh, if you don't think you get that from Matthew 18, uh, Jesus says something similar in John chapter 20. After his resurrection, he came to the disciples, and it says, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, is withheld. Uh, and so uh, it's a really serious matter uh, to talk about uh, church discipline. Uh, and um, again, I'm not going to go through all of the things that that implies. I already talked a lot about it in a previous sermon, but <clears throat> I really just want to focus in on, on one aspect of that which is if you're a member of this church, don't be surprised, like don't be shocked and amazed uh, if someone in church leadership comes and says, you need to meet with us. Uh, and I say this, uh, unfortunately, uh, out of uh, many long years, decades even, of being an elder, and I can tell you multiple times uh, there have been people uh, who had been in reformed churches like this one, uh, biblical, whatever adjective you want to use, and yet are offended and shocked when somebody in the church confronts them about their sin. It's not that they disagree, but it's almost like, how dare you even say that to me? How dare you interfere with my life in this way? Uh, and, uh, you know, so I've, I've, I've experienced this so many times that actually whenever I sit in on a membership interview, and Joe has sat in on some with me, I always make it a point to say, when you are joining the church, uh, if the elders confront you about a sin, you're not required to agree with them. 
uh, because that would be binding the conscience. We can't make you believe something you don't believe, but you can't say, how dare you bring it up? You can't say, how dare you talk to me about this, that it is part of what we are. And I would extend that actually uh, beyond just the elders, that even though uh, the elders in our church have, you might say, a court system, in a lot of ways, every believer in this church has the right to confront you about sin and to say, I see this in your life, I see something that's going on. That's what Matthew 18 is about. Jesus in Matthew 18 says, you go and talk to this person, and if they don't listen, then bring in the elders. It's, you know, the elders are not uh, the first thing to happen. Uh, and yet, as I said, our society is so fractured that people who have been in churches like this one for decades will often say, I can't believe that I'm being confronted over, over this sin. How dare you? Uh, and if there's anything that this passage teaches us uh, is that Paul is saying that there are things which you need to be called into account. And really, it's, again, the entire uh, letter to the Corinthians, second uh, letter to the Corinthians, it's about that. He's saying you need to uh, have, you know, some accountability uh, for what you are doing in your life, and that's what it means to be a Christian in the church. Now, in our particular church, uh, in the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, because we view that as a very serious thing, I mean, to say to somebody, we believe you are not in Christ and your sins are not forgiven is a, is a very, very serious thing. And so we do it rarely. And because of that also, we have a lot of rules uh, in what's called a Booker Church order to guarantee that someone has a fair hearing. And we're not just, you know, throwing things out uh, and, uh, and so on. And, you know, Paul refers to some of that, the idea of there has to be two or three witnesses and not just one pastor getting mad at somebody and saying you're excommunicated. This is a, a slow process with courts of appeal uh, and all kinds of things. And if you don't know about how that process works, uh, you're welcome to come to the Q&A afterwards, ask about that process or talk to uh, some of the leaders in the church. Uh, and that it sounds very bureaucratic, it sounds very um, formal to talk about church courts and things like that, uh, but it's really for your protection so that it's never done lightly. Uh, that, the, uh, that, you know, when Paul talks about his authority coming and being severe, that's a, a weighty and heavy thing, and so we don't do that lightly as a church, uh, and yet we view it as something that God tells us to do on occasion, uh, and it's not only something we're allowed to do, it's something we're actually commanded to do as elders to, to and, and really as all Christians, to challenge one another to live lives uh, that are consistent with our confession. Uh, now, that's all basic I'm going to say with that. I'm going to go on now to talk about uh, the middle part of this text uh, where he says in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. <clears throat> Test yourselves. Uh, <clears throat> or do you not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? The connection between these two is, is that Paul is essentially saying, if you examine yourself uh, and acted appropriately, then there wouldn't need to be this rod of discipline when I come. Uh, that if you kind of get your own house in order, then there doesn't need to be all of this uh, official challenge and apostolic authority and severity and, and so on. So he's essentially saying, you know, I hope that you've already examined yourselves before I come so that I don't have to go through this messy court trial and all this kind of things and that you guys have repented. Uh, and so uh, that's the connection here. 
Uh, but I want to focus in uh, really for uh, most of what I'm going to talk about on that phrase, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, uh, which he then restates, test yourselves. And then he says, what is the test? The test is to determine whether Jesus Christ is in you, uh, unless indeed, he says, it, you fail to meet the test. Uh, so just a little bit before I uh, talk about what that looks like, I have to say that in the circles that we run in, in reform circles, uh, there are a number of people, fairly prominent voices in reform circles, who will say this idea of examining yourself is just sort of uh, uh, not proper for Christians. It's an inward, sometimes it's called navel-gazing uh, or psychobabble. Uh, I, if I took a poll, probably many of you would have read somebody like that, right? Like all this psychological talk about thinking about your heart and thinking about where you're at and so on. That's all wrong. What we should be doing is we should be looking at Jesus, we should be looking at Christ, following him, and not having an inward look into our own hearts. Uh, and you'll hear that out there if you haven't already. Uh, well, um, except that this verse says examine yourselves, <laughs> right? It's very biblical to examine yourself. <clears throat> it's not uh, something made up by psychologists in California uh, in the 1960s. It's in Scripture. It says examine yourselves. Uh, and so um, there is a sense in which Paul says in another place, I don't judge myself. Uh, and uh, we've talked about that before in this church. There is a sense in which we can never fully examine ourselves because we can never really know ourselves. Our hearts are confusing uh, complicated. It's very hard to really know uh, about ourselves fully. But at the same time, uh, Paul says there is a context and a time and a place to examine yourself. It's not something just for sort of a certain type of wimpy, emotionally driven Christian. It's something that he's encouraging the entire church uh, at Corinth to do. Uh, the other thing I would point out uh, is that it's a test which you're supposed to be able to pass. It's not a it, he's not saying this is a self-test that you do that nobody can know the answer to, right? He's, he's not saying that. He's saying, um, actually, you should realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you. This should be the normal Christian life should be that you pass the test. Uh, and he's saying, I hope you don't fail the test. It might be, but he's not saying it's an unknowable thing. He's not saying you can't know whether you're in Christ, uh, He's really just saying the opposite, saying it's a test which you should be able to do and that you should be able to uh, normally pass. Uh, and so uh, it's not, again, something that we should be twisting in the wind about. Okay, so uh, with the next uh, 10 minutes or so, I'm going to give you five things that are not good tests and five things that are good tests. All right, so I didn't put any notes in the uh, outline uh, in the uh, thing. Uh, so don't worry, it's not a 10-point sermon with each point being 20 minutes, right? So it's, <laughs> it's 10 points, but each one's going to be uh, fairly short. Uh, so five things that are not tests, uh, in not necessarily in any particular order. Okay, so uh, the first is uh, that you prayed a sinner's prayer once, okay? So uh, some of you are already chuckling, and other people have no idea what I'm talking about. So there's a certain brand of Christianity uh, that I was very influenced by, and I can't say 
it's all bad. I think there are some really wonderful things that uh, people in that branch of Christianity are doing. But essentially, the way it comes across is what I would call transactional. Uh, that there's this prayer that you pray, uh, and if you pray the proper prayer just once in your life with the proper feelings, then you're in. You're just, you know, that's it. Uh, we're all done here. Uh, and you go on your life living your merry way uh, with no other change uh, going on. And so it's oftentimes called the sinner's prayer. Uh, and there's whole swaths of the church where people grow up thinking, that's it. If you pray the sinner's prayer, you're in. If you don't pray it, you're going to hell. And that's all there is to the gospel. Uh, that's not uh, something that uh, Scripture gives us warrant for. And again, uh, because I'm making these points short, uh, you can argue with me later <laughs> uh, if you want. Um, okay, how about uh, this one? Uh, it is a, not a good test to say, I had this deeply emotional experience once. Um, many people, uh, kind of on both sides of this, there are some people who never had a really deeply cathartic emotional experience and wonder for the rest of their lives whether they're really a Christian or not because they don't remember any specific instance where they had this deep experience. That's, scripture doesn't say that's one of the tests. Uh, on the other hand, you could be like the sinner's prayer person and say, well, one time I had this emotional experience, so I'm in, I'm good, nothing more, no more questions to be asked. Um, scripture doesn't give us warrant for that either. There's uh, many things that can sway our hearts uh, and lead us to, to feel very emotional. Um, okay, uh, number three, um, I do all kinds of religious rituals, uh, and I, uh, I'm very, you know, sure to make, I make sure I do all those. Now, in America in the, uh, you know, 21st century, that's probably one of the things we're all good at saying is it's not about religious ritual, right? Uh, and yet, uh, sometimes we can fill in our own ri religious rituals. Um, I was talking with somebody uh, the other day about someone who says, well, uh, you know, you, if you speak in tongues, you know, then you have assurance because, you know, that's the sort of very special religious experience that you have that uh, will give you assurance. Uh, and you can fill in the blank. Just attending church for many people, uh, thinking, well, if I attend church uh, and I know the Bible really well, uh, you know, this is something uh, which I can rest on. Uh, and again, um, you know, if you were following along in the Sunday morning sermons, uh, we went through a whole series of Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and these are people who followed all the rituals uh, to a T, and he says, uh, basically, I never knew you, uh, that your hearts are far from me. Uh, and so simply doing uh, religious rituals uh, is not uh, adequate. <coughs> um, then there's... Um, uh, Feeling really bad about your sins, okay, so point number four, okay, not a good one, okay, so some people think what, we, what I need to do to examine myself, uh, which in another place, by the way, uh, Paul encourages every time you take communion, before you take communion, you should examine yourself in this way. Uh, the, what he's not saying is what you need to do is make sure you feel sufficiently bad about your sins, that's what it's all about. Uh, again, it's not, I mean, there is a, a way in which it's natural to feel bad about your sins. You should feel bad about your sins, but um, it's not as though God looks down and he says, well, that person uh, didn't sufficiently work up enough emotion, uh, so they're going to hell. This person, they felt very emotional. They lived the same lives, but this person felt very bad about it, so uh, it's okay. They can go to heaven. 
Um, that's again, not in Scripture. So I can't cite Scripture to refute these because they're not in Scripture, <laughs> right? Um, and lastly, and maybe one of the most insidious, uh, this is number five of things that don't work, is uh, count up all your sins and make sure that none of them have been actually really, really bad. You've only done sort of mild sins. Okay, that's something that I think we implicitly all do, right, is to say, well, actually, I would pass the test uh, because I've never done anything really bad. Uh, And if you do that, of course, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to say, I can't lie to my heart. No, some of the things I've done are really bad, and then you're going to feel terrible. Or you're going to be like the Pharisees and be defensive and say, I've never done anything really bad. How dare you imply I did something really bad? Everything I did, I either had to do or was just some kind of minor thing, uh, and I've never done anything really bad at all. And so you become really just a carbon copy of the Pharisees. Okay, so those are five things not to do. All right, so how about five things uh, to do? Uh, And um, uh, I'm going to put these in a sort of an order. So the the first one is the starting point is uh, actually, have you ever actually asked Jesus to come live in your heart? Uh, Now, when I say that, um, it may sound like I'm talking about like a sinner's prayer type thing, Uh, but let me tell you a little bit more about what I mean. So notice in the, in the passage here, Paul says, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, if indeed you pass the test? Um, when we talk about uh, coming to God, uh, we're not just talking about a transactional arrangement in which we say, well, Jesus, you have a gift for me? Okay, great, I'll take that. But at the same time, everywhere in Scripture, Uh, There is the language of calling on the name of the Lord and inviting him to come to live in your life. So I'll give you just a few of these from other parts of Scripture. Uh, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, Psalm 145 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Uh, Luke 11:13 says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Uh, so there's numerous places that basically say God uh, will listen to those who call on him and he will come. So how is this different from just sort of what I'm calling the the transactional uh, sinner's prayer? In a way, they can sound similar. Uh, Both involve asking. Uh, But the the analogy I would make is asking God to come live in your heart is like a marriage proposal where you're saying, I want God, I want you to come and live in my life for the rest of my life and all eternity Uh, and scripture calls this union with Christ, and you see that here in the passage here. It says Jesus Christ is in you. It's not just a uh, transactional thing. It's saying I want him to live in me through his Holy Spirit in a real and true union, Uh, and that's a kind of scary thing because you're saying I am asking him to come into me and change me and do stuff to me, uh, and therefore I will not be my own. In some ways, maybe another analogy would be to say, well, I'm like a knight giving fealty to a king to order me about as he sees fit. 
uh, I'm, I'm saying, I will, I will lay my independence at your feet. <clears throat> now, compare that to, there's another type of asking where you go to a store and you say, well, how much is the bread? Uh, and the, the person says, well, it's two fifty nine. You say, okay, I'll take a loaf. Well, both a marriage proposal and that involve asking questions, but it's a quite different relationship, right? <laughs> uh, in the one case, you're saying, God, I want to be united to you by faith forever, whatever that involves, whatever commands you have for me. And the other, you're saying, well, you have a gift for me? That's very nice. I'll take that. Here's, you know, here's my sinner's prayer in, in response. Um, two completely different things. One is relational, permanent, indwelling, and the other is external, one-time, and not changing you at all. Do you see the difference between those two different starting points uh, for the life of faith? Uh, and so, when we come to him, you know, Jesus, Paul says, is Jesus Christ in you? And a good start is to ask him to be in you uh, and to ask it sincerely the way you might a marriage proposal. Uh, don't ask it insincerely. So my next three points are kind of quick. Uh, faith, hope, and love. Uh, the uh, scriptures give us warrant to test ourselves based on these three things. So... Um, I'll just run through them fairly quickly. Uh, faith. Uh, the reformers were big. Uh, there's lots of places in scripture where it says, uh, and I, I read that already in, in Romans 10, uh, that we come to God in faith, uh, believing in him. And I just want to make one point about that, which is when the Bible talks about faith in God, it's not primarily talking about believing that God exists. Uh, because in James, he says, even the devil believes God exists and he hates him. I would say most people, probably all people, I'm not sure I could prove it, but uh, the vast majority of experiences that people believe in God, but they, don't, they believe he exists, but they actually don't like him. They don't believe he's good. Uh, and so faith in God is not about believing he exists. I, I kind of think you can't help it. You believe he exists. You, you can't escape it. And, you know, the old statement, you know, an atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in God and is really angry at him, right? Uh, you know, you, you have an intrinsic, you can't escape believing. But actually, it's a really good phrase because, in fact, we all find ourselves not believing in his goodness, right? And so Hebrews says to have faith in God is to believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those uh, who believe in him, that, that he is good uh, and that he follows through. Uh, and um, we heard that this morning in John McComb's uh, sermon, the different responses of the people with the talents, that the third one who buried his talent in the ground believed the master existed but didn't believe the master was good, right? And he says, you're a hard man and you're mean and you ask us for things even without giving us the resources to do them. And he had a fundamental position of not believing the master was good even though he certainly believed the master existed. Uh, so that's something you can check. Uh, not about yourself, but what do I really think is really a, true about God? Is he really good? Uh, and the cross, of course, is God's foremost picture to us of his goodness, that he's willing to send his son to die for us, uh, that he is willing to give us good things uh, and treasures in heaven. Uh, the second, uh, I said faith, uh, hope, and love. Uh, these are you know, mentioned by Paul in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, just one thing about hope is that it, you could ask yourself, um, 
where, where is my sight really set? Am I really um, focused or thinking about spiritual things, uh, or am I what the Bible calls worldly? Uh, to the contrast is between those who have a hope of heaven and those who are worldly, and in a sense, they're blinded to that which is heavenly and can only see that which is right in front of them. And so they might give uh, lip service to, oh yeah, I believe in heaven and so on. Everything that's important to them uh, is right here in front of them. And I remember very vividly, oh, 20 years ago or more, someone who was in a Bible study with me and we were talking about heaven and after the Bible study, this person just had a really negative reaction, like what a useless Bible study because all we did was sit around and talk about heaven. That was just a pointless Bible study. And uh, 15 years later, that person left the faith. Uh, They deconstructed, as you might say. Um, You know, there really never was a sense of like, this is reality we're talking about. This is our future hope. Uh, And so, by contrast, the Bible talks about those who are worldly uh, and who are fixated on the things of this world. Uh, And finally, love. Uh, In uh, the Bible, we have many quite strong statements, like 1 John chapter 4 says, anyone who does not love does not know God, period. Okay. Uh, And yet, again, we have to maybe think about what we mean by love. It doesn't mean emotional, uh, you know, feeling like, oh, there's this person I love. Uh, I would define love as actually believing that other people are as important as you. Uh, I talked about how, in a sense, we don't really believe in God's goodness. We might believe he exists, but we don't believe that he's really a person that we can um, come to uh, and whose opinion matters. In, in a lot of similar ways, um, you might ask somebody if they believe that other people exist, and unless they're really quite you know, mentally ill, they will say, oh, of course people exist. But the default position, I would say, for humanity is to not believe that anybody else's needs are particularly important or matter, that I'm the one who matters uh, for everything. And when God comes uh, in our lives to stay, uh, he opens our eyes, not just to see that he exists and is real, but that other people exist and are real, and that their value and their importance is as much as ours. Uh, and so that's, it's kind of a package deal, uh, because when we come to God, he opens our eyes to see the needs uh, and, the, and the importance of people around us. So if you're counting, okay, that was number one was asking, two, three, and four were faith, hope, and love, and number five is repentance. Uh, so all through scripture, there are passages talking about repentance that leads to life. So I'll read you one from Acts chapter 11. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God and said, So to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads unto life. Now, this is in the context of Gentiles who had come to Christ uh, through the preaching of the word. But they talk about repentance that leads to life. Uh, And we talked about this in many sermons as well, uh, that you can never put a wedge between faith and repentance. That to repent fundamentally means to actually believe that God's commands are really good, not just arbitrarily good that you have to do, but that you actually believe that God gives good commands, uh, and so that it's worth following him. Uh, And so it leads to a new outlook on life uh, and a new way of seeing things. Uh, And again, just as sort of a a minor test, 
you know, one should be able to say, uh, have you ever done something in your life that was really hard because God asked you to? Uh, that's what repentance means. Uh, now, many of us go through periods of not repenting and God turns up the heat, challenges us, makes us feel super guilty, finally brings us to repent. But if that's never been your experience, you've never actually done something hard just because God asked you to, then maybe you should question whether he's really living in you because that is one of the things that he uh, leads us to do in the same way that a parent leads a child to do hard things uh, because he loves that child. Uh, so I'm just going to finish up here and just say, um, uh, again, I just want to emphasize when Scripture talks about examining yourself or testing yourself and so on, uh, it's really out of the mindset of the norm for the Christian should be that you pass the test. And the reason is because it's not based on adding up all your sins and saying, well, uh, you know, this sin outweighed, this good deed outweighed that sin because nobody could pass that test, right? If I had to say that my sins were all smaller than my good deeds, then I'm, I'm doomed to failure, all right? But what does Paul say is the test about? He's saying the test is about whether Jesus Christ is in you. Uh, are you his adopted child? Are you his bride? Are you united to him? Are you a branch in the vine? Uh, all this different language of being intimately connected. Uh, and if you've never asked, if you've never started that, down that path, uh, now's a good time uh, to say, God, I don't want you to be at arm's length. I want you in my heart. And when you're in my heart, uh, I know you're going to move the furniture around. You're going to do some things and you're going to make some changes and that's going to be uncomfortable, but I actually trust you that that's going to be good. Uh, that's going to be good for me. Uh, and so I don't want uh, you to take away from this that, oh, I've got to agonize over whether I'm really a Christian, but rather, just as uh, John was saying, God is good. He's calling you to invite him in and to lay your life at his feet and it will be good uh, but it's something if you've never started down that path, now's a good time uh, to, to, to say, I really want. Uh, and you don't really have to make a judgment about where you were in the past. You can simply say, maybe I was a believer before, maybe I wasn't, doesn't matter. Right now, I want Jesus in my life, and he promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who ask. Uh, and so let's go to him in confidence uh, looking at this passage, examining but not out of a sense of, uh, constant anxiety, but rather out of a confidence that he loves to give good gifts uh, to his children, and he will come through his Holy Spirit to those who ask. Let's pray. Father, uh, there's so much more that could be said uh, on this passage. Uh, Father, I just pray that you would help us to be honest before you. And Father, uh, as we uh, look at the, um, uh, the statement of Bonhoeffer at the beginning of the bulletin, Father, um, how actually it is freeing uh, to come to you uh, and to come to our Christian brothers and sisters uh, in repentance uh, and confession and honesty. And Father, I pray that you would lead us to uh, change, to be more like you, uh, and to do that in the confidence that you are indeed good and that we can trust you. And Father, we just uh, give you praise now in Jesus' name. Amen.